Welcome everyone to um, our first meeting of the London Aesthetics Forum for the term. And before we get started, as always, I'd like to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for their generous funding of this program. And I'd now like to very happily introduce Adriana Clavel Vasquez, um, who is currently a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oxford, was previously a lecturer at um, Hull, and a research fellow at Sheffield. Um, some of you may have already been familiar with Adriana's work, which is at the intersection of aesthetics, philosophy of mind, and ethics. Adriana is the co-founder of the Aesthetics and Ethics Research Group. Um, I'll just throw this in. She's also a member of our trustees committee at the British <laughs> Society for Aesthetics, but that isn't the reason she's <laughs> giving a talk. Um, she's been published in the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism and has published not only in aesthetics but on philosophy of race and diversity and other related issues. Um, and I'll just say, uh, as an addition, her paper, in particular, Sugar and Spice and Everything Nice, What Rough Heroines Tell Us About Imaginative Resistance, is I think one of my favorite recent papers in aesthetics. I've had a student who has written an entire dissertation related to uh, the ideas in this paper. I think it's just fabulous, and I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it. Okay, Adriana is going to talk to us today about the role of imagination in the aesthetic appreciation of racialized bodies. Take it away. Thank you so much. That's a very kind introduction. And um, I just want to start by thanking Andrew and Stacey for inviting me and um, giving me a chance to present um, this paper, which is um, part of this new project I'm working on, on um, the ethics of imagination, funded by the British Academy. Um, in particular, it's part of um, a, a section on the project where I'm examining the role of imagination in how we engage with other agents. So um, let's start with a couple of examples. So in 2017, uh, Maria Sharapova published her autobiography, and in it she talks about Serena Williams, and these are a couple of quotes uh, from the book. She says, um, uh, I think Serena hated me for being this skinny kid who beat her against all odds at Wimbledon. And she continues, first of all, her physical presence is much stronger and bigger than you realize watching TV. She has thick arms and thick legs, and is so intimidating and strong. It's the whole thing, her presence, her confidence, her personality. And then she rounds it up by saying, even now, she can make me feel like a little girl. Um, Maria Sharapova is six feet two, which is 188 <laughs> meters. Serena Williams is five feet nine, which is 175 meters. Um, professional tennis players are not skinny kids, they are not little girls, right? So here are Maria Sharapova, Monica Stellis, and uh, Simona Halep. These are strong, powerful athletes, right? So um, what's the difference? Why would Sharapova claim that Williams makes her feel, quote-unquote, like a little girl? And, I mean, of course, the difference is that Williams is a black woman, and uh, Sharapova is a white woman. And note that Sharapova is not talking about Williams's performance, right? She's talking about her body. And by pairing the attribute strong and this description of her limbs as thick and using um, the word intimidating, um, 
Sharapova is not really talking about Williams as her professional equal, but she's equating Williams to this big, mean bully, while she, Sharapova, is this vulnerable little girl, right? And I want to note that these are very much aesthetic remarks. Sharapova is positioning Williams as an object to be contemplated and that merits very specific responses. And unfortunately, Sharapova's aesthetic perception of Williams is consistent with the racist trope of black women as aggressive, right, as violent, while white women are these vulnerable and delicate and graceful beings. So let's look at another example very quickly. Um, this is Misty Copeland. In 2017, she became just the first African-American dancer to be promoted to principal dancer by the American Ballet Theater, which is one of the three main <clears throat> ballet companies in the US. So 2017, why did it take so long? We can't really um, explain this by alluding to a lack of classically trained African-American dancers. For example, we have the Dance Theater of Harlem, which is a black ballet company and ballet school, which was founded in 1969, and which has contributed to a now long tradition of classically trained black American dancers. Some of those dancers have moved to other smaller companies to become part of the corps de ballet. Some of them have been promoted to soloists, to principals in these smaller companies across the US, but not in the main uh, American companies. And I think the lack of black American dancers in the main uh, ballet companies can be explained by racist attitudes, right? So a ballerina is regarded as someone who is meant to be delicate and elegant and vulnerable and graceful, right, ethereal. And these are features that have been traditionally associated with white women, right? On the contrary, black women have been historically uh, regarded as aggressive, as hypersexual, right? And of course, these are not the features that we look for in a classic ballet dancer. Now, of course, it might be difficult to find nowadays dance critics or choreographers who would make explicitly racist remarks in public, but nonetheless, it actually isn't strange to find critics and artistic directors and choreographers, teachers, and even other dancers who claim that black dancers simply don't have, quote unquote, the right lines, or that their style of dancing is not suited for classical ballet, or that their strength is not suited for classical ballet. And again, these are all aesthetic um, reasons to exclude black dancers from classical ballet, right? So the excuse is that their bodies just don't have the right aesthetic qualities to make it as classical ballet dancers. So how can we explain these differences in, for example, how we aesthetically evaluate white and black and brown bodies? I think this is a problem not simply of our aesthetic criteria being designed to favor certain bodies and disfavor certain other bodies, but I think this is a problem with aesthetic perception. Aesthetic evaluations depend on aesthetic properties. How we aesthetically evaluate, in this case, a body, 
depends on the aesthetic properties that we judge it to have, right? And we perceive aesthetic properties. So what I think is that these racist attitudes against Serena Williams, against uh, black uh, American dancers, um, are a problem of aesthetic perception. To some people, these women look brusque, look aggressive, uh, inelegant, etc. right? So what I'm going to argue today is that racial stereotypes impact how we ascribe aesthetic properties because of top-down influences on perception. In particular, I'm going to argue that mental imagery that we have acquired through our interaction with aesthetic practices plays a crucial role in our perception of aesthetic properties um, of racialized bodies. So the talk will be divided into four sections. I'm going to begin by presenting Paul C. Taylor's views on how our aesthetic appreciation of racialized bodies reproduces the workings of racism. In section two, I'm going to present a characterization of aesthetic properties. Uh, section three is going to examine how these aesthetic, pro aesthetic properties are perceived. And finally, in section four, I'm going to examine how this picture applies to the aesthetic perception of racialized bodies. So, I want to begin by examining uh, Paul Taylor's analysis of what he calls the race aesthetic nexus, of how race thinking impacts our aesthetic practices, and how processes of racialization are underwritten by aesthetic phenomena. And I want to do it, uh, I want to spend some time doing this because I want to highlight two things. The first thing that I want to highlight is that the examples that I presented are not isolated cases, right? They are part of a pattern that disregards black and brown bodies, for example, while favoring white bodies. And second, I want to highlight that this aesthetic disregard is not trivial, right? So it's not a matter of vanity, that we all want to be regarded beautiful, right? It's a matter of how processes of racialization, like Taylor highlights, and racial hierarchy are underwritten by aesthetic perception. So, like I said at the beginning, the examples involve the aesthetic evaluation of bodies, right? We are not evaluating someone's character, their intentions, their performance, or even our interactions with them, right? So these evaluations are concerned with human bodies um, as experienced from the third-person perspective and through the external senses. And they are aesthetic because they treat bodies as objects, that cause experiences of pleasure and displeasure. They treat bodies as objects that have specific qualities that cause these experiences of pleasure and displeasure. And they treat bodies as objects that invite certain responses as a result of having these qualities that cause experiences of pleasure or displeasure. So these evaluation of bodies from a third-person perspective and through the external senses that's what Taylor is going to call sarcastic judgments. Now, we might still think that the examples that I presented are not, in fact, examples of aesthetic evaluations of bodies, because after all, Sharapova is not saying that Serena Williams is ugly, right? And nobody's saying that black dancers are ugly and that's why they're not invited, right? But here I think it's important to keep in mind the distinction between substantive and predictive aesthetic judgments. So substantive aesthetic judgments 
concern the overall aesthetic merits of an object. If it's aesthetically good or bad, if it's beautiful or ugly, uh, superior or inferior aesthetically, etc. Right? So, on the other hand, substantive aesthetic judgments concern the aesthetic qualities on which our overall judgments of aesthetic merit depend on. Right? So, substantive aesthetic judgments would be something being graceful and elegant, so that's the substantive judgment, and that's why it's beautiful, verdictive aesthetic judgment, right? Or something, another substantive uh, aesthetic judgment, something being vulgar, something being clumsy, and that's why it's ugly, and that would be the verdictive aesthetic judgment. So, sark aesthetic judgments can take the form of either verdictive or substantive aesthetic judgments. Now, it's also important to point out that Sark aesthetic judgments, as any aesthetic judgment, are governed by certain norms and principles, right? So they differ from judgments of erotic tastes, of sexual desire, because presumably judgments of erotic taste and sexual desire depend on someone's likings or preferences, right? But Sark aesthetic judgments, because they concern the attribution of aesthetic properties to an object, they, um, in Kantian terms, make a claim to universality, right? We expect others to assent to Sark aesthetic judgments. So, Taylor argues that Sark aesthetic judgments are governed by norms and principles that unfortunately reproduce the workings of racism that depend on and support racial hierarchy. Why? Well, because our aesthetic practices have historically racialized beauty, in the sense that beauty in human bodies has been historically defined by the white European tradition in terms of the physical features that we are most likely to find in individuals we identify as white. Right? So, in this sense, whiteness is construed as an aesthetic ideal. So, we have a hierarchical evaluation of human beings along racial lines, right? And this hierarchy also involves aesthetic superiority and inferiority. And the central assumption under this racial hierarchy is that human beauty is realized in white folks, right? So human beings are regarded as more beautiful the more their physical features resemble those physical features that are uh, traditionally associated with white identity, right? So the idea is that the fairer the skin, the flatter and silkier the hair, the slimmer one is, the more beautiful one is. Now, most importantly, this aesthetic uh, hierarchy is not incidental, right? Remember that traditionally, physical ugliness has been taken as a sign of moral ugliness. We have a long tradition linking beauty and goodness, right? Starting with the Greek notion of polos kagathos and culminating in what Taylor calls classical racialism, according to which these aesthetic differences that we find between races are really just signs of deeper, more important differences in intellectual and moral capacities. So the established aesthetic hierarchy is problematic because of the implications that it has for whether we regard others as moral equals. So it is important. It's not a matter of vanity, right? So under the assumption that there is this intimate relation 
between beauty and goodness, excluding members from a given racial group from positive aesthetic qualities, carries the implication that their moral value is diminished. Now, we might still be tempted to think that, yes, excluding members from a given racial group from beauty might be bad, but it's not that we don't appreciate them aesthetically, right? There are many other aesthetic properties that we value in aesthetic objects, right? Sometimes, for example, we value artworks for being fascinating and different and exotic, right? And so we might say, look, we do appreciate non-white bodies, it's just that we appreciate different aesthetic properties in them, right? They are exotic, exuberant, uh, mysterious. So why would these attribution of aesthetic properties that we actually regard as positive in, uh, as positive in other contexts, why would it be bad when it comes to human bodies? On the other hand, we could also object that it's not as if only white people are regarded as attractive, right? Historically, there's plenty of examples of black and brown folks who have been celebrated as attractive, right? Think of Rihanna or Beyonce or, uh, I can't think of anyone, <laughs> Griselda, right? But here we have another reason to distinguish sarcastic judgments from judgments of sexual desire. Taylor highlights the fact that there has always been this dialectical relationship between aversion and desire in contexts in which beauty is racialized. In this context, although we reserve our judgments of beauty for those whose features resemble white features, right? Non-white individuals might still be regarded as having a quote-unquote special kind of sex appeal. But the problem is that this special kind of sex appeal involves a sexual desire that is not marked by admiration, by affection, by romance, as we would think intimate relationships should, right? But it is marked by violence and by forced submission. And here, Taylor refers to what Christina Sharp calls monstrous intimacies. So this means that while non-white bodies might be regarded as desirable, sarcastic judgments of non-white bodies are marked by violence and by dominance, and they contribute to dehumanization. So the problem is that the type of aesthetic properties that are traditionally attributed to non-white bodies are marked by these patterns of moral disregard, of dominance, and of dehumanization. So it does matter what aesthetic properties are ascribed to racialized bodies, because some of them are taken to endorse the, mor the moral credentials of an individual, right? and some other aesthetic properties are meant to reinforce these patterns of violence and dehumanization. So this is particularly relevant, for, relevant, for example, when we think of the history of sexual violence against black and brown women, against uh, black and brown boys and young adults, right? Now, we might think that we have moved from classical racialism. And so we might think that the criteria under which we aesthetically evaluate bodies is underway, right? So it's changing. We're going to get there. But the problem is that, as Taylor notes, 
the very processes of racialization are, as he says, underwritten by aesthetic perception. Here I'm quoting him, by the effectively and symbolically loaded, loaded workings of immediate experience. Black people look dangerous or unreliable or like bad credit risks. So this means, again, that the problem lies not simply in racialized aesthetic criteria, but in the aesthetic properties that we perceive racialized bodies as having. So it makes no sense to work in changing our aesthetic criteria to stop excluding, for example, black and brown bodies from our categories of beauty or excellence if the problem is that we continue to perceive them as having these negative aesthetic properties. So, let's now move on to examine what are aesthetic properties and what it means to say that we perceive them. I just want to note that for the purposes of this paper, I'm going to be focusing on aesthetic properties of perceptual objects. So I'm not going to have anything to say about how we might experience or how we might perceive um, aesthetic properties in non-perceptual objects, like a piece of literature. Right. So we can characterize aesthetic properties, at least of perceptual objects, as perceptual or observable properties that are relevant for an object affording pleasure or displeasure in contemplation. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to come up with a more satisfactory definition, right? Or with a more precise way of distinguishing between aesthetic and non-aesthetic properties. But even with a lack of definition, we mostly agree with an open-ended list of um, aesthetic properties, which include um, stuff like um, what I've put here. So beauty, ugliness, sublimity, grace, elegance, delicacy, harmony, unity, wittiness, anguish, cheerfulness, serenity, uh, flamboyance, melancholy, etc. Right, what I want to emphasize here is that, at least in the case of perceptual objects, aesthetic properties are perceptible. We perceive aesthetic properties, just like we perceive objects. So aesthetic properties depend on non-aesthetic, low-level perceptual properties of objects. Yes, they depend on non-aesthetic properties. But although they depend on non-aesthetic properties of objects, it's not that we infer aesthetic properties from non-aesthetic properties. So aesthetic properties are directly perceived. We might use non-aesthetic properties as explanatory reasons after we have perceived aesthetic properties. Right? So for example, I might say that a painting is dynamic. And if someone asks me, I might say, well, uh, it's dynamic because of the brush strokes, or because of the colors, or because how the figures are distributed on the canvas, etc. But it's not that I perceived the, the distribution of the figures, I perceived the brush strokes and the colors, and then I thought, oh, right, so it must be dynamic, right? So the thought is that um, <clears throat> aesthetic properties are directly perceived. And so, aesthetic properties uh, should be understood, I think, as guests of like or emergent properties. So the idea is that aesthetic properties are directly perceived because they are brought into presence in perception. So for example, Gerald Levinson advances uh, the phenomenological account of aesthetic properties, right? 
and he characterizes aesthetic properties as ways of appearing, as properties that reveal their nature through and in appearances. And so these ways of appearing, according to Levinson, are perceiver relative and condition relative. They only manifest themselves uh, to subjects with the appropriate sensory, perceptual, and cognitive apparatus, and only in conditions that are conducive to this manifestation, right? But they are perceivable because they are ways of appearing. <clears throat> so aesthetic properties as ways of appearing are guest-self-like properties because they are brought into perceptual presence when we perceive a structure configuration on, of non-aesthetic properties. So the idea is that it works something like this. We have non-aesthetic properties of objects. These non-aesthetic properties are perceived under a given structure configuration and a way of appearing manifests when non-aesthetic properties are perceived under this configuration. And this way of appearing, that's the aesthetic property. So, to sum up, aesthetic properties are guest of like properties. They are ways of appearing that are brought into perceptual presence when we perceive non-aesthetic properties under given uh, structure configurations. But although they are perceiver and condition relative, aesthetic properties are attributive, right? So although they are perceiver relative and condition relative to coming to presence, these ways of appearing, these properties, are still ways of appearing and properties of an object, right? So we, when we ascribe aesthetic properties, we are attributing an emergent way of appearing to an object. And this, of course, carries the implication that the attribution of aesthetic properties can be either correct or incorrect. Because the object will either have or fail to have the relevant aesthetic properties, right? The object will either have or fail to have the relevant way of appearing. And of course, this could be problematic for an anti-racist aesthetics of the body. Because this would mean that when it comes to the attribution of aesthetic properties to racialized bodies, either they are elegant and delicate, or they are awkward or lewd, right? So a defender of the racialized aesthetic hierarchy could claim that, look, our hierarchical appreciation of racialized bodies is just explained by the fact that some bodies which just so happen to be white have certain aesthetic properties that we value, and some other bodies which just so happen to be non-white have aesthetic properties that we disvalue, right? So this could be a problem. And what we can respond is that racial hierarchy and the workings of white supremacy lead to the attribution of the wrong aesthetic properties. We are mistaken, right? So what we have in these cases is just a conflict in our attribution of aesthetic properties to racialized bodies. So the racist ballet critic thinks that black ballerinas are exuberant, right? And the anti-racist ballet critic thinks that no, black ballerinas are elegant and delicate. So this raises a problem. If aesthetic properties are attributive, 
why would we find these conflicts in our attribution of aesthetic properties to objects? Uh, Levinson argues that these variations that we find in our attribution of aesthetic properties can be explained by either differences in our perceptual sensibilities or differences in our attitudinal sensibilities, right? Um, attitudinal sensibilities, he understands it to be our disposition to respond with attitudes of favor or disfavor to given phenomenal impressions. So the mistake in our attribution of aesthetic properties to racialized bodies needs to be explained in one of these two ways. And I think that we can explain these mistaken attribution of aesthetic properties by attending to problems in our perceptual sensibilities. Why? Well, because in the end, those differences in our attitudinal sensibilities will be explained ultimately by differences in our perceptual sensibilities. Why? Well, because attitudinal sensibilities, these dispositions to respond in various ways, um, need to be, those dispositions need to be understood in terms of affective responses, right? And because of how affective responses depend on perception, it seems to me like differences in attitudinal sensibilities can ultimately be explained by differences in our perceptual sensibilities, right? And I think this is what Taylor means when he says that aesthetic perception underwrites racial categorization, right? So non-white people simply look a certain way. And that's what gives us reasons to respond with certain attitudes of favor or disfavor. The problem is how we perceive them, right? So what does it mean that aesthetic properties, as I've characterized them so far, how does it mean that they are perceived? And why would we find these variations in our perception of aesthetic properties? Right. So I have emphasized that aesthetic properties are directly perceived because they are Gestalt-like properties that are brought into perceptual presence. But of course, aesthetic properties are high-order properties, right? So I need to explain what we mean when we say that we can perceive high-order properties. So in this section, I'm going to follow Dawson Stokes, and I'm going to claim that aesthetic perception should be understood as a case of uh, cognitive penetration phenomena. So by the end of this section, I'm going to argue that mental imagery, so imagination with um, a phenomenal character, right, has a crucial role to play in our perception of aesthetic properties. So, like I just said, uh, the claim that aesthetic properties are directly perceived entails the claim that high-order properties can be perceptible. And that's why I think we need to turn to cognitive penetration. Cognitive penetration just, to, just refers to how certain perceptual states are affected, are penetrated by other types of mental states. So the idea is that the content and the phenomenology of perceptual experience changes because other cognitive processes, other mental states, penetrate those per perceptual states. And so recent work on cognitive penetration argues that we in fact perceive high-order properties precisely because of how perception is influenced by other cognitive processes. So the idea is that high-order properties are perceptible rather than just being inferred 
because the influence of other cognitive processes changes the content and the phenomenology of perceptual experience. So when it comes to aesthetic perception, the claim is that aesthetic properties, like being graceful, elegant, or exuberant, are brought into perceptual presence because our perceptual experience is affected by other cognitive processes. I mean, why talk of cognitive penetration at all? Well, because I think we do need to emphasize that there is a change in our perceptual experience, in the phenomenology of our perceptual experience, when we attribute an aesthetic property, right? I think what we have to emphasize is that aesthetic properties are brought into perceptual presence because when we attribute an aesthetic property, the way that we perceive the object changes. And this change, I think, is caused by the intervention of other cognitive processes. Now, to argue for the claim that aesthetic experience is a case of cognitive penetration phenomena, Dustin Stoke focuses, Stokes, sorry, focuses on the impact of aesthetic expertise and training on how we appreciate aesthetic objects and artworks. So according to Stokes, the expert is better at appreciating and judging aesthetic objects because she's literally better at perceiving them. And to argue for this claim, Stokes makes reference to empirical evidence that suggests that concepts and beliefs influence, for example, color perception. So, for example, he references a study by Witzel et al. on color memory. So, in this study, uh, subjects, participants, are shown images of um, well-known, traditionally colored uh, objects. So, for example, the red Coca-Cola logo, um, the, the, I think it's the Pink Panther, and I think a Smurf, right, which is blue. Um, and they are presented with these images in shades of gray. So there is no color. And then participants are asked to match these images in shades of gray to an achromatic gray background. And what they found was that participants overcompensated uh, in order to uh, match the images to the gray background. And so this was taken to suggest that although the images were in just in shades of gray, um, participants continued to see the images in their known colors. Um, the other argument that Stokes presents is that even if we were to argue that what happens in the case of aesthetic expertise is that we have changes in attention, and that's why we become better, those changes in attention should still be regarded as a case of cognitive penetration, even if it's a little bit uh, indirect. So the idea would be that if it is indeed the case that expertise changes how we attend or um, what we attend to in aesthetic objects, this uh, change in our attention mechanisms is automatic, right? It's non-agential. If we are indeed an expert, we don't need to make an effort and consciously remember that we have to attend to this or that thing, right? So Stokes argues that background knowledge, our expertise, impact non-agential selection mechanisms, um, these non-intentional acts of attention. And that, in turn, changes how we perceive the object. So what we have in this case 
our um, other cognitive state, right, our background knowledge, our expertise, impacting, even if it's a bit less direct, how we perceive aesthetic objects. So Stokes concludes that this gives us reason to think that our appreciation of artworks is cognitively penetrated. So what cognitive processes could be affecting our perception of aesthetic properties? Well, in particular, Stokes argues that is knowledge about aesthetic practices in the form of beliefs and concepts, right? And that's what impacts our aesthetic perception. And this, of course, is not a new position in aesthetics, right? Kendall Walton, in his Categories of Art, he already argued that whatever aesthetic properties uh, we think our works have, that depends on knowledge of the relevant art historical facts, right? So according to Walton, our appreciation of works depends on what categories we regard them as belonging to. And these categories are just um, perceptually distinguishable ways of classifying artworks, right? For example, media or genres, uh, styles, um, different artists, etc. So according to Walton, the categories um, under which works are perceived depend on art historical facts, right? And they are going to determine which non-aesthetic properties are aesthetically relevant, which aesthetic properties we can attribute to an object, and they're going to determine whether an artwork is good or bad, successful, unsuccessful, precisely in virtue of the aesthetic properties that we attribute to it and in virtue of the category it belongs to. So, if our aesthetic appreciation of works depends on perceiving them as belonging to specific categories, and these categories in turn depend on art historical facts, then it means that background knowledge about these art historical facts impacts how we perceive artworks. That's the idea. But what I want to argue here is that it's not just concepts and beliefs about categories that impact our aesthetic perception. I think imagination plays a significant role in perceiving aesthetic properties. Because I think that aesthetic perception is really a case of what Fiona McPherson calls the indirect mechanism of cognitive penetration. So the mechanism proposed by McPherson is a two-step process. First, we have cognitive states, perhaps beliefs or desires, that cause the initiation of an imaginative process. In this case, this imaginative process um, is going to uh, uh, concern imaginings with phenomenal character, so quasi-perceptual states, right? And then, in the second step, the phenomenal character of these imaginings, of these quasi-perceptual states, interacts with and affects the content and the phenomenal character of our perceptual experiences. So, we have some beliefs and desires, those trigger the initiation of imaginings with phenomenal character, quasi-perceptual states, and then, in turn, those imaginings impact our aesthetic, our, sorry, perceptual experience. So when applied to aesthetic perception, what I propose is that aesthetic properties being brought into perceptual pro uh, presence requires not just propositional cognitive states, knowledge of these art historical facts, but imaginings with phenomenal character. And what I think is that mental imagery plays a crucial role in providing the structure configuration under which non-aesthetic properties are to be perceived, 
in order for the aesthetic property to manifest. Right? So I said before that aesthetic properties are to be understood as Gestalt-like properties. They are brought into perceptual presence when we perceive non-aesthetic properties under a given structure configuration. And what I, what I think is that this structure configuration is partly given by a broad repertoire of mental imagery that we have acquired as we are immersed, as we are familiarized uh, with a given aesthetic practice, with aesthetic tradition. So the background knowledge in this case is not just uh, propositional content and concepts, but also this uh, repertoire of mental imagery. <coughs> so what I think is that um, background knowledge of the relevant art historical facts triggers the relevant mental imagery, right? imaginings that have phenomenal character, and in turn, the phenomenal character of this mental imagery that's what impacts, that's what affects our perceptual experience of aesthetic objects. Right? So this mental imagery is what allows us to perceive non-aesthetic properties organized in such a way that aesthetic properties are brought into perceptual presence. Right. So, I have argued so far that imagination plays a role in aesthetic perception because mental imagery that we have acquired as we are immersed in aesthetic practices uh, structures the way that we perceive non-aesthetic properties so that aesthetic properties are brought into perceptual presence. But while these might work for our works, right, it might not apply for our aesthetic perception of racialized bodies. Uh, because we don't perceive racialized bodies under artistic categories, right? So how does this picture fit with the aesthetic appreciation of racialized bodies? <clears throat> well, what I want to note is that the case of the aesthetic appreciation of racialized bodies is in fact very similar to the case of artistic objects, because actually racialized bodies are cultural products as well. So racial categories are human artifacts. They are the product of human agency, right? Pretty much like Walton's categories of art. So racialized bodies are cultural art, uh, sorry, cultural products that, like artworks, are imbued with meaning given a certain context. So here I'm quoting Taylor, race thinking is a way of assigning social meaning to human differences and of assigning significance to the characteristics that enable us to mark people as different from each other. So if racialized bodies are cultural products like artworks, then I think that background knowledge and mental imagery that we acquire as we are immersed in a given cultural uh, and expressive practices also play a role in aesthetic perception. So when it comes to the appreciation of racialized bodies, racial categories determine which non-aesthetic properties we take to be relevant for our appreciation. They determine which aesthetic properties we attribute to bodies as aesthetic objects. And they also determine whether we think that a racialized body is aesthetically valuable or not. So the process of aesthetic perception of racialized body of a racialized body would work something like this. We perceive a human body under a given racial category. Racial categories and racial stereotypes associated with them function in this case as our background knowledge. These cognitive states 
activate the repertoire of mental imagery that we have acquired as we interact with cultural practices. And the phenomenal character of these mental imagery impacts our perceptual experience. So these um, stereotypical uh, representations of racialized individuals, that mental imagery, that's what structures how we perceive non-aesthetic properties of bodies so that aesthetic properties are brought into perceptual presence. And so the idea is that we end up perceiving aesthetic properties in racialized bodies that are consistent with our mental imagery, right? precisely because of how these mental imagery impacts our perceptual experience. So the differences in our aesthetic perception of racialized bodies is due to the racial uh, categories under which we perceive bodies. right? And just like we acquire mental imagery of the different categories as we are immersed in an artistic uh, practice, we acquire mental imagery that creates and that reinforces racial stereotypes as we are immersed in a cultural practice. Right? And crucially for the case of aesthetic perception, we unfortunately acquire mental imagery of the racialized standards of beauty as we interact with the predominantly white European aesthetic tradition right, that dominates our cultural practices. So for example, Patricia Hill Collins emphasizes the role of what she calls controlling images in sustaining systems of oppression. So controlling images just refer to racist and sexist stereotypical images that we find in popular culture that attach to non-white folks and that are used to justify oppression. So she's talking about black women in particular. She says, uh, from the mammies, Jezebels, and breather women of slavery to the smiling and Jemimas on pancake mix boxes, ubiquitous black prostitutes, and ever-present welfare mothers of contemporary popular culture, negative stereotypes applied to African-American women have been fundamental to black women's oppression. So these controlling images have been created, repeated, and reinforced by the white European aesthetic tradition. And this is the mental imagery that we have acquired as we interact with our aesthetic practices. Right? And this is the mental imagery that is activated when we perceive non-white bodies. And this is the mental imagery that structures our perception of non-aesthetic properties so that aesthetic properties are brought into perceptual presence. So, these controlling images, like I said, are found everywhere in our, in our aesthetic tradition, right? And the thing about representations that we find in our aesthetic tradition is that they don't just present our representational content in a neutral way, right? Representational content is presented from a specific perspective that foregrounds certain aspects of the represented object and obscures certain other aspects, right? And this is particularly true for artistic rep representations, right? Artistic representations not only foreground certain aspects and obscure certain other as aspects of the object that is represented, right? But they are already emotionally pre-focused. They call for specific responses. And so they represent the object in such a way so as to call for specific responses. And so when it comes to artistic representations of racialized bodies, these bodies are already represented as having specific aesthetic properties. They are already aesthetically pre-focused, right? So think, for example, of the ethereal character of classical representations of white women, for example, Goya's Majas, right? 
against the earthiness of Gauguin's representation of black women. Right? So artistic representations of racialized bodies already make salient certain features that are consistent with racist stereotypes, right? And they downplay and obscure certain other features that would contradict these racist stereotypes. So in our acquired mental imagery of racialized bodies, certain aesthetic properties of bodies have already been made salient in our phenomenological experience, right? And so the phenomenology of aesthetic properties of bodies in our acquired mental imagery, that's going to color, that's going to change the phenomenology of our perception of racialized bodies in real life. And this is how I think aesthetic properties of racialized bodies are brought into perceptual presence. Right? So the aesthetic phenomenal character of mental imagery, of this racist mental imagery, interacts with and affects the aesthetic phenomenal character and content of our perceptual experiences of racialized bodies. Now, we can object to this fiction, right? We can say, look, I don't experience this uh, runway of mental imagery when I aesthetically appreciate a racialized body. So how can it be affecting, right, uh, how I perceive aesthetic properties in non-white folks? Well, the thing about controlling images the reason why they work so well in sustaining the existence of oppression is that they are so pervasive that we might not realize that they're playing a role in our interaction with non-white folks, right? So what I think is that mental imagery in this case is in fact unconscious, like other cases of cognitive penetration, right? Mental imagery can be spontaneous, it can be non-deliberate, and yes, it can be unconscious as well. It's not always available to introspection. And that's what I think is happening here. So aesthetic practices play a significant role in sustaining these controlling images. Right? And so just like it is the case with categories of art, that we acquire the relevant background knowledge as we interact and become familiar with aesthetic practices, right? we unfortunately acquire racist mental imagery as we interact with the predominant expressive culture. So for example, Taylor notes that expressive culture offers, offers a depersonalizing, depersonalizing treatment of blackness through uh, the deployment of various objectifying aesthetic strategies. Right? One of these objectifying strategies concerns who we find represented and what we find represented in aesthetic tradition. Right? And what we find are stereotypes and stock figures. Here I'm quoting Taylor, archetypical personifications of anti-black prejudices defined by single characteristic traits, servility, buffoonery, sexual rapaciousness, brutishness, and so on, rather than by the complex configurations that make for unique personalities. And this is, I think, what is happening in the case of Serena Williams. Right? So racist mental imagery of black women as aggressive, as violent, that we have acquired as we are immersed in a given cultural practice, that structures how we perceive non-aesthetic uh, properties, and that's going to determine which aesthetic properties are brought into perceptual presence. But I want to note that uh, our repertoire of racist mental imagery is not the only thing that can explain this asymmetrical evaluation of white and non-white bodies. I think the lack of relevant mental imagery is also relevant, is also uh, responsible for skewing our aesthetic perception. 
So the fact that non-white folks become invisible in our predominant aesthetic practices means that we just don't have mental imagery available that could structure our perception of non-aesthetic properties in different ways and that could counteract this racist mental imagery. So in addition to the prevalence of controlling images, right, the invisibility of non-white folks, that also skews our aesthetic perception. And we lack anti-racist mental imagery because, as Taylor notes, black and brown expressive practices and artists have been historically excluded from the institutions of the art world, right? And that is, I think, what is happening in the case of black ballerinas. Um, their body is regarded as less aesthetically valuable than their white counterparts because we don't really have any kind of um, reference of other black ballerinas who are ethereal and elegant and vulnerable, right? Why? Well, because black ballerinas have been erased from the history of American ballet, right? That's why we lack the relevant mental imagery. So Missy Copeland is not, in fact, the only principal, the only black principal dancer, right? The problem is that she is the first to have been noticed by the main dance companies in the U.S. and the first to have been noticed by popular culture, I guess. So, I have argued that mental imagery acquired through our participation in these cultural practices impacts our aesthetic perception of racialized body. And this is why we see white women as vulnerable while we see black women as aggressive, right? So what are the implications of this picture that I just painted? Well, first, Taylor already noted how processes of racialization are underwritten by aesthetic perception. But here I have argued that aesthetic perception is in turn affected by mental imagery that we uh, acquire as we interact with our predominantly white European aesthetic tradition. So this would mean that race is an aesthetic phenomenon not only because it is underwritten by aesthetic perception, but because this aesthetic perception is in turn underwritten by the predominantly white European aesthetic practices. So racial categories are in a sense created by and sustained by aesthetic practices that equip us with racist mental imagery that affects our aesthetic perception, right? Which in turn underwrites processes of racialization. And so this means that representation matters, right? There's been a lot said recently about how diversity in popular culture matters, right? Um, but what I want to note is that representation matters not simply because we need, uh, people need to see themselves represented um, in popular culture or in our aesthetic practices. But representation matters because those aesthetic practices craft the mental imagery that is available to us to impact our aesthetic perception of racialized bodies, right? So that means that we need others to see us represented positively in our aesthetic practices, right? We need to change uh, the stock of mental imagery that we have available to us. And so representation matters because we need to have anti-racist mental imagery made available to us through our cultural practices. Thank you.